friends, Christy Teji here, your host for the Productive Passions Podcast. Let me ask you, is there something different you dream of doing, but don't know where to begin? If you're feeling suffocated, anxious, or you feel there's something different calling you, come along with me for candid conversations with people who have embarked on a journey to put their passions to work for them. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Life is too short to stay stuck. Hi, friends. In today's episode, I'm talking with the master of Simon Says, Steve Max. If you've been to an NBA or NCAA event over the past uh, 20 years or so, you may have captured his hilariously entertaining performance. Steve has been entertaining crowds of people at sporting and charity events, kicking off corporate events with positive engagement and making a living, living his best life. Join me as Steve shares how he followed the passion he discovered early on in life and became the Simon Says Guy and what he's done to make a difference in this world of ours. Simon Says, don't miss this episode. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast with me. I'm so excited to have Steve Max, the Simon Says Guy on Productive (laughs) Passions. Steve, I know that you are considered the head honcho of NBA and NCAA halftime shows, but so much more. If you had to describe yourself, how do you describe yourself? Oh, geez. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Christy, on your show. It's just like such a fun thing to do. Right now, I'm in the midst of basketball season. I got like between 80 and 90 halftimes and corporate sales meetings and So it's nice to just be a little bit different, which is what this is. So I appreciate you having me. Ah, how would I describe myself? I describe myself as a positive force in the universe. I think there's either positive forces or negative forces. I think when you bump into people, they're going to affect your day either positively or negatively. And whenever I see people, I sort of categorize them in those two ways. And obviously, the people listening, your millions of followers that are listening, they can't see your beaming disposition. They can hear it. I can see you because we're doing this sort of zoomy thing now. But you got this big smile and you're glowing. And it's just a, it's just a positive thing I'm feeling through the Internet. But there's a heck of a lot of negativity in the world. So I just consider myself lucky that I was brought up by two very loving parents that let me do my thing and that I'm able to affect people, arenas full of people, in a positive way so that when they meet me either personally or when I'm performing, that they walk away their day being just a little bit brighter. So let's back up a minute and tell folks what it is you do. So we've talked about it a little bit, but if you had to describe your nine to five, and I know it's not a nine to five, what is it that you do? It's interesting because when I pay my taxes or when teams have to file paperwork, there's all these categories. So it starts out, number one, I'm an entertainer, right? And then what type of entertainer? Well, am I an actor? Am I a street performer? Am I in this? Am I a public address person? And I just have to say, I'm a professional Simon Says caller. And people are like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> they don't get it. No, really, Steve. What is it that you do, right? Yeah, I know. And the first question, when they finally succumb to the fact that, okay, let's say for a moment that you are a professional <laughs> Simon Says caller. And then they always come up with this phrase. They always say, and this is how you make your living. And um, (laughs) in fact, there was a, a guy, an old Jewish man who lived in my neighborhood. And he said to me in Yiddish, he said, from dus machs a leben, which means from this you make a living. And I had to learn to say back to him the next time I saw it. Yes, from dus ich machs a leben, from this I make a living. And people don't, they can't seem to wrap their head around how someone can make a living playing a game. But I have been able to do it, Christy. So I've traveled 
I wouldn't say extensively, but I traveled a lot throughout the country throughout my career. And I would always meet people on airplane or meet them here or there. And I've met some of the coolest people with the coolest jobs. And I would always ask them when they had a job like what you do. So, Steve, where does one get the application to be a Simon Says caller? Okay, fair question. So when I was a kid, I was given a magic book by one of my aunts as a gift. And I immediately got into magic doing card tricks and whatnot. When I was 15 years old, my grandma took me into the city and she bought me some magic tricks. And I started doing magic shows at birthday parties, at Cub Scout blue and gold dinners, at First Holy Communions, at Christmas parties, at firehouses. So I was an entertainer from the age of 15. And I would say even before that, I would always be the clown at the dining room table, always trying to make my family laugh, especially my dad. And there was a certain amount of gratification when you could make someone else laugh. So that was my humble beginnings was the seed that was planted early on, trying to make people smile, laugh. I also was affected as a kid growing up in New York. On Sunday mornings on Channel 11, Abbott and Costello movies would be on every Sunday morning from 1130 to 1. And I was in awe of these two vaudeville (laughs) comedians and the way they would do their routines and just make me laugh out loud. So they were certainly one of my early influences on my career to doing what I do now. Well, I have to tell you and tell the audience, this is the first time I'm meeting Steve. I saw Steve performing at a halftime show, an NBA halftime show, and I said, I got to have him on my show. And right then I found him and I messaged him and I said, will you be on my podcast? And I don't know if you remember your response. You said yes. And then you responded again and you said, I probably should have done my homework before I said yes, because you haven't had a lot of podcasts. I was like, no, no, please be on my podcast. But you put on such a show. So it sounds like Simon says, okay, yeah. I watched it, and then I've since watched some of the videos you've done. Can I tell you, it stresses me out, because I'm trying to do play along, and I mess up every single time, because it's not your typical Simon Says. You really hook these people, right? Like, you're like, come here, come here, come here. Oh, no, Simon didn't say you're out. Yeah. I'm known mostly for my halftime work. Uh That's where I'm most, I guess, if you want to use the word famous, but (laughs) But in the halftime marketplace, I'm one of the top acts in the country. And so that's what everyone knows me. What people don't realize is when you do a halftime for an NBA game, as an example, halftimes are 15 minutes. But you don't start at the 15-minute mark. Sure. You have to wait for the teams to leave the court. You have to wait for the NBA referees to leave the court. Sometimes there are famous people that are there, and they go off to a secret location and have drinks. And then you start. So now the clock is at 12 and a half minutes, not 15. And they want you off the court at six and a half or seven wow. or seven and a half or eight minutes left on the clock. So really, any tricky moves that I do in my show are to move things along because we don't really have a lot of time out there. And it's really like walking a tightrope. My goal is to make everyone laugh and entertain an arena full of people, but also I want to make sure the people on the court are laughing, too, and have a fun time. And that's the beauty of Simon Says. It's a game with only one rule, right? Only do it if I say Simon Says. And yet people just absolutely suck. They make mistakes left and right. I don't know if it's because they're nervous being on the court. 
I don't know if they're distracted because there's 20,000 people staring at them. But for whatever the reason, when they make mistakes, nine times out of ten, they're not unhappy. They're not mad at me. They're going to be walking off the court laughing, saying, that was fun. And how the heck could I have made that mistake? My goodness. Yeah, that's exactly what I watch. People would be like, oh, I can't believe I just did that. And then turn around, walk off laughing, like you said. But it's also the way you call it, right? There's a talent there. You're not just going out there. You couldn't say, I know how to call Simon Says. I'm going to do halftime shows. Like, I think you have fun with it for sure. And that's evident. But it's also work because, like you said, you have to be extremely mindful of time and what people are doing. But also, like, you just keep rolling. You keep rolling and rolling and rolling. It's not like, okay, what am I going to have them do next? Do you have a specific – is it sort of scripted? I'm not going to say scripted, but there is a framework to my show. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. I always introduce both teams. I always have two lines of players. I introduce the teams. And then I go into the Simon Says, and that's the middle, and I eliminate people. And then you have the end where I lift the hands of the victors in the air as we are the champions plays through the sound system. But everything in between those three elements is basically improvised. I mean, I've been doing Simon Says since 1985. I didn't mention, I started playing Simon Says. 1985, in a hotel in the Catskills of New York, where I worked for several years as the master of ceremonies in the nightclub and as the director of activities. So we would do everything from play bingo with the guests to bocce, you know, outside. And I started doing Simon Says with the guests. And in the beginning, it would just be as if you were playing Simon Says with the guests. But The more you do it, the better you get. And the improvisation really comes in handy. I also did stand-up comedy at the beginning of my career. I was in an improv group called Unexpected Company. You'll laugh until you stop. So I had all these elements to help me shape who I am and what I do. And all that comes together right now. And I will tell you, people always ask me, What's my favorite on-court experience? Years ago, I was doing a Dallas Mavericks halftime show, and it was Military Appreciation Night. So Mark Cuban, the owner of the team, flew in a lot of injured military from a hospital in San Antonio, and they were playing Simon Says. And I narrowed it down to four guys. I said, Simon Says, put up your right hand. But one of the fellows put up his left by mistake because he's facing me. So I put up my right. He accidentally puts up his left, but he didn't have a left hand. There was no left hand there. And it could have been awkward, but I thought quickly and I said, you know what, my friend, I said, put up your right. You put up your left, but it appears as though you gave your left hand for our country. So you are still in the game. And the crowd went nuts. The guy was so excited that he was still in my silly little game. And he ended up winning. And what was so gratifying was what could have been a very awkward situation turned into just a true blessing on the court that, you know, as I said at the beginning, I want to be a positive force. And that's what happened on that particular day. And it took my regular show to a new level because of something that wasn't scripted. It was just something that happened to be. I had no idea that he had lost his hand initially, and I didn't know that was going to happen, but it did happen. And you have to be able to, if you're a good entertainer, to navigate those type of spontaneous things that happen and, you know, hopefully, you know, make it work. And to that day, it worked. And I'm sure he appreciated that, not just staying in the game, but the way you handled that. That's such an important thing. And kudos to you, because a lot of people would not have known how to respond to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. The instances come around and you do the best you can. Sure. So 
I want to ask you about after high school. Did you go to college or technical school or anything else? Yes, I went to the Simon Says University in Denver, Colorado. Have you heard of it? No. Is that a real thing? No, it is not. I I, so. <laughs> I went to uh, Montclair State. At the time, it was a college. Now it's a university. I went to Montclair mm-hmm. State College, and I graduated four years later with a degree in broadcasting communications. And all my friends, we had, because we were in such close proximity to New York City, all my classmates were instantly employed by radio stations and TV, and they became producers and editors and all manner of things. I was the only one who (laughs) – actually, that's not true. I, out of college, got a job at a small boutique advertising agency in New York City, and I worked there for about a year editing commercials and interviewing voiceover people. But then a year later – I had an opportunity to go up to the Catskills and, you know, work at the hotel. And so that's when I left the ad agency. But, yes, I got a degree. I worked in the ad agency. And then I went to the Pines Hotel in South Fallsburg, New York. Well, it sounds like a seedy place. Is it a seedy place, Steve? No. How dare you? Back in the day, in the early 1900s, the Catskills was just riddled with hundreds of big hotels, big, medium, small hotels. And the people from the city, a lot of people don't realize this, the uh, Catskills is a safe haven for Jewish people because there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the early 1900s. Gay people, the gay community, they would all spend their summers in the Catskills just to escape the city, the heat, but also all the other stuff that happens when you're, you know, not in the mainstream. You know? So they came there because it was, like you said, safe for them. Right. So Jewish people, you know, built hotels, built bed and breakfasts, all manner of places. And the Catskills be- became a summer haven for tens of thousands of people. When flight, when airplanes were invented, and people could then fly and go away on vacations, the Catskills slowly went away in the late 1900s to where all the hotels closed up. But during that time, I worked there. I washed dishes. I waited tables during the summertime, a way to make a few extra bucks. Sure. And it was just a crazy time with summer love and then just meeting people from all over. And that's where I develop a stage presence because as the MC of the nightclub, I would introduce all the professional comedians and musicians that came to the hotel. And I owe a lot to the years I spent in the Catskills and people like Joan Rivers and Jerry Seinfeld and Danny Kay and Tissy's I don't know if you're old enough to know Danny Kay, <laughs> but Danny Kay was a movie star. He's like a, a song and dance man. But all these big stars, all these big comedians worked the Catskills. It was just a great training ground for people. And that's where I got my start, too, up there. So is that hotel still there today? No. Unfortunately, like many hotels up there, they sure. they're in disarray. They're either grown over or they've burnt to the ground. There's a lot of websites. People have a certain, I don't know what you call it, darkness. They want to go into these places and just, you know, post pictures because we all remember how full of life they were back in the day. Well, exactly. And I'm one of those people. I don't need to post pictures about it, but I want to go in and see what's left behind. Yeah. You're going to find something going through there. So I get that curiosity. So very interesting history that I didn't know. I mean, I've certainly heard of the Catskills. I've never been there, but that's really interesting history that I was not aware of. Yeah. And they just opened up a Borscht Belt. They called it the Borscht Belt because the European Jews that came over, you know, they would serve Borscht. Borscht was a, you know, cold soup 
that they would eat over in Europe. And so when they came here, they would make it here too. So borscht was always served in the hotels. So they called it the Jewish Alps, the borscht belt. Anyway, so there's a borscht belt museum and they're like collecting all artifacts from all the hotels. How cool. And I'm sort of a living testament to the Catskills. Most of the people that remember the Catskills are super old or have passed away and the hotels are gone. So they want the memory of the Catskills to live on. So they've created this thing. And I will be a part of that in, I hope, what's called the Tumblr section. Tumblers are people who worked at the hotels who made the guests laugh. You know, they play games with them. They do just silly things like jump in the pool in a tuxedo, anything to make the guests laugh. Was that specific to that area or is that known out in California and other places of the country or is that specific to the Northeast? It's kind of specific to the Northeast and the Catskills, the Tumblers. And hopefully I will be a part of the museum in that section, along with other gentlemen who, over the course of some of them, over 40 years working up there and generations of people going to hotels and seeing that same person doing their thing. I've always been of the mind that in order to know where you're going, you got to know the history. Sure. And if you were to go to stevemax.com, my website, not on the phone, but on the regular desktop computer, there's a history of Simon Says. And there's a handful of guys who did Simon Says over the years. One of them, his name is Lou Goldstein. And he was kind of an inspiration for me because he showed me that, yes, you can do Simon Says and do it for a living. And he was on some TV shows in the late 70s and early 80s, the Battle of the Network Stars and the Superstars. And he would play Simon Says with famous people. And later on, when everything that's old comes to be new again, and they brought back Battle of the Reality TV Stars. Oh, my god! And they called me for that TV show. And I did something Super Bowl weekend called The Ultimate Defenders a few years ago, and they called me for that TV show. How fun. So I consider it an honor that I am following in the footsteps of the great Lou Goldstein and am now the go-to person for TV. And I've been able to do a few TV shows uh, over the years doing my Simon Says, and it's just, I'm very proud of that. So, Steve, do you mean to tell me there might be a wax Steve? Somewhere, somewhere. <laughs> yes. Steve so I could go Steve Max, the wax guy. Yes, no, just Steve Max wax. There you go. So I could go visit this wax guy, get a picture taken with him, say, yes, I know Steve. We're tight like this. <laughs> Why not? That would be amazing if they that did a wax. That would be amazing. <laughs> so let me ask you, I'm curious. When you told your family and friends that you were going to be Simon Says Guy, for your full-time gig, what was the response? Well, first of all, I don't know if there was ever that definitive a thing where I just said, I'm going to, I was doing the magic shows and juggling and balancing. So I was doing Simon Says whenever I had a party. This is a post-1985. When I came back home and I was doing these shows and there was more than just, let's say, a birthday party in someone's basement. If it was a summer camp or an event where there was lots of families, maybe a hundred people, then I would bust out the Simon Says. And what I found is, especially at the summer camps, the kids like the Simon Says more than they like my magic. And so I could read the writing on the wall and I started doing more and more Simon Says and less of the magic and juggling and balancing until I had a full 45 minute Simon Says show. Wow. So there was sort of a transition period there in the late 80s and early 90s. And then what happened, I did that for like 10 years. And then around around the turn of the century, I, I feel so old by saying that. But around the turn of the century, I went to a New York Knicks basketball game. And the halftime show was a guy, just some guy, 
shooting foul shots for cash. And this poor bastard was not hitting the rim. And he was a safe bet. Oh, man. You could feel the crowd not turning on him, but they certainly weren't entertained on this particular day. And it was almost like uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, Because sure. everyone in the arena is thinking, I could at least make one, and this guy wasn't hitting any of them. Well, there's a reason they picked him, right? I guess so. And so that's the very first time I thought, you know what? I'll bet my Simon Says would be more entertaining than what I'm presently watching. How do you approach somebody and say, I'm going to do a halftime show? Well, what's interesting about that is I never thought Steve Max was good enough to entertain at Madison Square Garden, the world's most famous arena. That was not even an inkling in my head. But that day, something clicked, and I said, maybe Steve Max is good enough. So what happened is, in all my years of doing those birthday parties, one of those parties was in Connecticut at this family's home, and I had no idea at the time, but it was the Checkets family, and the father, Dave Checkets, was the CEO of Madison Square Garden. So he was in charge of the New York Rangers, the New York Knicks. Oh, my gosh, Steve. But at the time, I just thought he was just some rich guy who lived up in Connecticut with his wife and kids. And I had performed at his home a couple of times for birthdays and for a Halloween party for the neighborhood. I reached out to him. He put me in touch with human resources that put me in touch with a guy who is still a very good friend of mine. 21 years later, he works for the NBA now. His name is Mike Champ. But at the time, he was the guy who booked the halftime acts for the Knicks. Watch out, Mike. You're getting ready to get a whole bunch of phone calls. I don't know about that. He's a good guy. I reached out to him. I didn't have a videotape at the time, at least not for doing halftime shows. And he said, let me speak to my boss. And he got back to me and he said, you know what? You're a hard sell. You know, a kid's game at Madison Square Garden, Simon says. And my boss says, we're willing to give you a shot, but not with the Knicks, with the New York Liberty. Okay. Because the WNBA crowds are more family friendly. They're like a kinder, gentler crowd. He said, and if that works out, then we'll consider you for the Knicks. Well, in the summer of 2001, I did that show, and it worked out famously, and I got a videotape out of it, which I then made copies of, and I sent out 30 VHS tapes in the mail. Hey, I know what those are. Right? To the 30 NBA teams. Wait, did you rewind them before you sent them so they just had to push play? No. Rewind, rewind. And then Blockbuster hit me up for 50 cent charge per tape. What? No, I'm teasing. So, um, <laughs> so the next season, I got my first four NBA halftimes. I think like the Knicks, the 76ers, the Toronto Raptors, and the Houston Rockets. And I'm like, okay, four, that's good. And then I got a call from the Aggies of Texas A&M. Oh, yeah, sure. Steve Max, we saw you at the Houston Rockets game. Loved it. Hilarious. We think you would be great to come in here in College Station, Texas, and entertain our fans for our conference home opener. And I flew out there. And it was the most amazing experience of my life. Wait, can you say that again? It was the most amazing experience of my life. Oh, I'm still keeping that that sound (laughs) clip. That was great. (laughs) The energy in a collegiate arena, at least at the, you know, Texas A&M, was just off the hook. And... They have what they call yell leaders. They don't have cheerleaders. They have yell leaders, guys that are dressed in military white or naval white, and they do with their arms. It's almost like semaphore, and they're like 
to instruct the crowd what cheers to do. So the crowd is the cheer squad, and they do whatever the yell leaders tell them to do. And so there was such an energy in the room. The lady next to me puts her arm around me and sways me back and forth. And I just became one of them. And I'm like, I am such an idiot. I have spent the past year marketing myself to only 30 NBA teams. How many colleges are there? Turns out there's over 300. So Division One schools. So I spent the next months going online, going to the NCAA website, and putting each of those schools in my database. And then I started marketing myself to them. And slowly but surely, things started to happen. And that's when I was able to dedicate basketball season just for doing basketball. Because I was doing summer camps in July and August. I was doing school assembly programs with a show called Simon Says for Better Listening and Respect at local elementary schools here in the New York area. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah, because all the things that make you a good Simon Says player make you a respectful person. Listening, paying attention, staying focused. If you do that when you're talking to another human being, you're going to be thought of as a respectful person, whether it's in the workplace or around the dining room table. That Um, makes sense. And here we are, 21 years later, I'm celebrating my 21st season as the Simon Says guy and most requested halftime show in the country. And I was able to retire from summer camps and the school shows. And now I only do basketball halftimes, sporting halftimes in general, and corporate sales meetings where I get to speak about teamwork, employee morale, bettering your listening skills. And what's great about the halftime work, you do the Orlando Magic, and then you get an email from someone who is in the crowd, someone like you. Or someone who says, you know what? We have our national meeting come up. You would be a great kickoff at our morning session. And so that's what I do now. I was watching a video of you. I think you were at a craft, um, K-R-A-F-T, the craft uh, business meeting of some sort, and then later at an AT&T one. I was like, you know what? This guy's good. He has got the leaders standing in front of their team doing the chicken dance, you know? Right. And I could see, first of all, people were having fun. And second of all, it really captured people's attention. And what I thought is the team is seeing their leaders be human. But, man, the talent it takes to convince people at the top of a big corporation to do the chicken dance and do the Simon Says, That takes confidence. I see that you have a lot of confidence. Has that helped you in growing what you're doing now? Or has it been in growing what you're doing that you've gained confidence? Yeah, oh, for sure. And I'm glad you used the word that they're seeing their leadership as being human, because that's exactly the word I use when I sell myself. What they're doing is, you know, these people that are, in offices, maybe on a different floor, maybe you don't know them. Mm-hmm. So, yep, you've never seen them. So, companies will bring me in and see, you know, they humanize their bosses. Maybe they look a little silly, but we never offend, never do anything that would put them in a bad light. Everyone is just having a good time. And right. another reason they like to work with the uppers of companies is just so that people get to know them. Because a lot of times they don't know the leadership of a company because they're in their cubicles doing whatever. So it's like a warm and fuzzy feeling throughout the company. And I think certainly the companies where leadership can laugh at themselves, those are the best companies. Those are the most productive companies. If people are having a good time, not just at a holiday party or a corporate sales meeting, if they can see their leadership having a good time, then the company as a whole is going to be in a better mood. The atmosphere is going to be wonderful. And they're just going to be more productive company at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, 
like you said, that leaks into the corporate culture. When the leaders could get up and do that, that feeling from that meeting, that lasts. And I say that because I know that from firsthand experience where I've attended corporate events and watched my leaders get up and have fun and sometimes laugh at themselves, but certainly never disrespectful. And I went, I remember in particular one individual, Bill Bourne, I will tell you, his name is Bill Bourne. He started a medicist. Sadly, he passed. But I remember just really feeling so warm towards him because he did that. And then later, he talked to anybody who wanted to talk to him. And he was a leader of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So I think you are completely right when corporations can have fun, when their leaders can have fun with their teams, it changes the feeling a bit. And I think that's something that you bring to whatever companies that bring you in is allowing them to see their leaders as humans and have fun and, you know, and then that carries over. You remember that? And then people talk about that too. Yeah, of course, the greatest thing for entertainers is when you get a call back from the same company two years later and you said, the people want you back. That is just so nice to hear, so gratifying. Certainly that works with the basketball halftimes. You know, I have customers, the Dallas Mavericks, have been using me almost 20 years in a row. You know, the Toronto Raptors has been using me for almost 18 years in a row. And to have that repeat business, this is a very exciting. I do in March the, uh, you know, you've heard of March Madness with colleges. Yes, of well, course. The madness starts with the conference tournaments at the beginning of March. So they have all these conferences. You have the ACC, the Big Ten, the A-10, the SEC, you know, Big Mountain, all these conferences across the country. So they all play each other, and the teams that win the conferences move on to the big NCAA tournament that starts three weeks into March. So I've been doing the ACC, the Big Ten tournaments, those first two weekends going back 15 years. Wow. And then more recently, the Atlantic 10 has used me now eight years in a row and the Horizon League in Indianapolis. But this morning, I got a call from the ACC and they want me back. One of the reasons they want me back, they do a Friday night sponsorship with a company called Food Lion. And Food Lion is a supermarket chain. I guess in the South, certainly in the Carolinas, and they do a sponsorship with, or a promotion rather, with volunteers at local food banks. So for the women's ACC tournament, for all the years I've been doing this, I play Simon Says, volunteers of food banks versus the ACC mascots. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine how much fun that is. It is too much fun. And the mascots, of course, they pounce all over each other. When they get out, they don't just walk away. They just do a face plant and go crashing to the ground. And mascots are the hardest working people in showbiz. I've said it again and again and again. And the winner on the volunteer side gets the equivalent of 10,000 meals for their food bank to distribute to the hungrier of us in the greater Greensboro, North Carolina area. Again, it's a positive thing in the universe that I get to be a part of. And I was told that the Food Lion people, they want you back. They love the promotion, and they love that you're a part of that promotion. One of the advantages I have over other wonderful halftime acts, I mean, there are great halftime acts out there, many of whom are my friends, and I love talking with them about the business. But I have a microphone, so I can mention names of sponsors. I can do all sorts of things with that microphone. You know, when you saw me at the Orlando Magic, I always say, it's great to be here in Orlando with the best fans in the nation. (laughs) Okay, and of course, I say that wherever I go. You know, if if I'm in Michigan, I say it's great to be back in Michigan. You know, if I'm in Chicago, Chicago, you're amazing. 
That's called professional sucking up to the home crowd. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's um, nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Because you want those people to smile. Anyway, so the fact that the Food Lion people, the good folks at Food Lion, are requesting me to come back and work with them again is just very lovely. And I could not be more honored to be a part of that. Because it's a win-win. Everyone wins on that. It is. And one of the things I noted earlier is you're having fun. You're keeping people entertained. But I did notice before you and I talked, of course, I did a little bit of homework, that you're also making a difference. And I think that's so important. And just I want to thank you for that because, you know, you could just do your thing and have fun and go about your life. But when you say yes to those opportunities where you can raise money or raise awareness for organizations that depend on people's generosity. That's a really important thing. So to me, that making a difference is a big deal. And I want to say thank you for that. Of course. Thank you. I would also, of course, be remiss. I didn't get to the top of the halftime act food chain on my own. I have to always thank my parents. My dad would before I had a driver's license, he was dropping me off at parties, and then he would come back an hour later and pick me up. And What's your my wife, name? my dad is Stan. My uh, mom has passed, rest in peace. But my dad is still kicking. He lives down in Florida. Oh, um, where in Florida? Um, Boca. Of course, of course. So he's a neighbor of mine. I'm a little Century Village. Century oh. Village in Boca. I know where that is. I have to go visit Stan. He must be an amazing guy to have raised you. He's amazing. He's 80, I think he's 85, 86. He lives there with his Shelly, his new uh, squeeze. Not new squeeze. They've been together over a decade. Oh, how bad. Yeah. And he has a great sense of humor. Certainly anything that I have, I got from him and my mom and my siblings. We're all just so lucky to be together. And But I have to mention my wife. Please. What's your wife's name? Well, Linda is my wife's name. And when I met her back in 89, she was at Columbia University getting her MBA. And she was hired right out of school to go work for Kraft Foods. Ah. Um, Hence that Kraft video that you saw earlier. That was my little in for that gig. And when we moved in together, we were engaged, moved in together, and she had her job at Kraft. And here's what separates her from everyone else in the human. She said to me, I know you want to be an entertainer. You go ahead and try to be an entertainer. I'll pay the bills for two years. Wow. Who does that? (laughs) Who in their right mind? And so that enabled me to not have any pressure on myself to start advertising in local rags to get my name out there. And after the first year, I made some money. She said, good, you made some money. Now you start helping with the bills and I'll start saving my money. So when we have children, they can go to college wherever they want. And one day we can retire in style. And here we are all these years later. It's like 34 years later, whatever it is. She just retired. Yay, Linda! Um, Good for you. After working in corporate America and then three nonprofits trying to combat childhood obesity and her last job as the executive director of the New York Milk Bank, which takes uh, donated mother's milk and sends it off to hospitals to help premature babies develop and be strong because they call it liquid gold. There's nothing better. So she's done all that. And now we're going to live it up. As her father-in-law used to say, you work hard and then you play hard. That's right. Does that mean an end to the Simon Says guy? Absolutely not. Oh, Um, my goodness. I am of a certain age, but I have my health and I'm going to continue to do this until either my health gives out or someone says to me, Steve, you're just not funny anymore. 
If someone says that to me, then I will gladly hang it up. But until then, I see myself doing this for another 20 years. And maybe I'll be a little more picky with my gigs. Maybe I won't do 80 or 90 half times. Maybe I'll cut back. But I just love doing what I am doing. When I'm interviewing someone, there's always a place where I want to rewind. And right now, that's where I want to rewind. How do you feel about what you do, Steve? How do I feel about what I do? Yes. I love what I do. And I'll tell you what. I see so many people that don't love what they do. And they're doing it nine to five for whatever reason. And, you know, everyone has their own story. It's sort of like triathlons. I was talking to you earlier about my wife who started doing triathlons. And her reason was because she wanted to be a stronger person post breast cancer. And it was an unexpected blessing that came her way. And now it's in her DNA, working out and waking up early. And even though she's retired, she's going to get up. She's going to go sit on. If the weather's nice, we'll go bike riding. If the weather's not nice, she'll hop on the stationary bike or a treadmill at the gym, or she'll go swimming. And when we started doing triathlons, or when I went, I was her Sherpa. <laughs> she called me her Sherpa. We and all I would, need good Sherpas. I would make sure the pressure in her tires <laughs> were ready to go, and I would carry her helmet and her wetsuit, all that stuff. And I absolutely love doing that, too. And In talking to people that do triathlons, they're all there for their own individual reasons. Either they're doing it because they had a health scare, or they're doing it because they're doing it in memory of someone who passed away. Very few people, maybe the top 1%, if that, do it because they want to win the race, you know, and they're out there killing themselves. The 1%, they're professional athletes. They do it because there is prize money at a lot of the major triathlons and marathons. Everyone else is doing it not to make the podium, but to do it just to do it, to make themselves a better person, to do it in memory of someone, or just to prove to themselves that they're capable of doing it. You know, my wife at 60 wanted to do the New York City Marathon. She had never done a marathon before. And for your listeners, there's different levels. There's half marathons. There's sprints, which is half of a half. And then you have the marathon, which is 26.2 miles. And you can't just do a marathon. That's something you have to train for. And then there's crazy people out there that do Ironman competitions, too. Could you imagine that, Christy? I cannot imagine. Uh I'm four. Hoping to be five. I know. For your listeners, see, Christy has done them, and she's amazing. But my wife wanted to experience, at the age 60, a marathon. So she trained for it, and then COVID hit. And she ended up, I dropped her off somewhere. She used her GPS, whatever. She ran the 26.2, uploaded it, and the New York City Marathon people sent her a medal. But she felt like she didn't experience the marathon. So two years ago, when they had the marathon up and running again, she did it again, this time in front of the tens of thousands of people cheering her on. And it was worth it for her because the people that are out there, not just the tens of thousands, but the people running alongside of you are so supportive and so wonderful. And they're out there the same reason you're out there. And she's met so many wonderful people that she keeps in touch with in the triathlon community. So she's I feel like I want to do a race with her. Well, you would probably. (laughs) That would be amazing. That That would be amazing. amazing. We're going to do the Disney one soon. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. And I say that. Not joking, because you are right, and she's right. 
it is a community of people that are encouraging and supporting. I don't care who you are, what you look like, how fast, how slow you are. It is a community of people that support one another. You go by somebody, you cheer them on, you tell them how great. Of course, if you can't breathe, that's a little bit different, and that happens too. But then somebody else is cheering you on. So I uh, kudos to Linda for doing that for her health and for her enjoyment. And kudos to you for being her Sherpa. You know, if the Simon Says thing doesn't work out, you could always become a professional Sherpa. You know what? I would love doing that because I love seeing people succeed. And, you know, you're so on point with the triathletes. They come in all shapes and sizes and colors and genders. It's amazing. I've now started doing half marathons with her. She said, I'm sick and tired of you cheering me on. You come do them with me. So we recently did Detroit, where we did a half marathon, ran over a bridge into Canada, and then came back. Oh, In how fun. This May, we're doing the Indy Mini, which is a half marathon, and you run around the Indianapolis 500 Speedway. And now we're going to start looking at national parks and start doing halves. Because we want to use half marathons as an excuse in her retirement, not mine, to see the country. So you spend, you know, a couple of hours doing a half marathon, and then you spend a long weekend somewhere special. And just enjoy life. So that's part of the reason I race, and I don't really race, I do these events, is to see the country. I have done several of those national park ones. I did Glacier a couple years ago. Did I see, Christy, that you ran in Paris? I did, because I wanted to go to France. And the only way to get to (laughs) France was if I signed up and did that marathon. And it was extraordinary. It was, it inspired me to want to do the world majors. Gosh, Steve, there is so much inspiration out there in people and events and activities. And part of this life is having a good life, is getting involved in doing something you care about. We talked early about there are some people who hate their jobs. And there may be a circumstance where somebody can't leave right now and not everybody can go out and quit a job and start something else. But you can be involved in something that brings you joy. And I love that you talk about all these things your wife has done because I hear in you that it's been wonderful for her. But it also seems like it's been wonderful for you. Well, (laughs) it has been wonderful for me. And I will tell you that now that she's retired, I mean, I leave tomorrow to go to uh, the Cavaliers of Virginia. And uh, I'll spend two days at the University of Virginia doing men's and women's basketball games. And then I fly to Los Angeles. She's going to meet me in L.A. We're going to go hiking in Joshua Tree. And then I'm going to do a couple more. She's going to stay out there because we have our sons are both in California. I have to come back to do some more half times here and then keep on traveling. I feel really bad now that she's not working nine to five because when I'm on the road and she's working, at least she's busy. But now I'm out there for weeks at a time. She's at the house. I hope two things happen. I hope she finds things to do to occupy her time. And I hope she doesn't take on a lover because, listen, I wouldn't blame her. I wouldn't blame her if she did, you know, if she you know, took on a suitor. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. You heard it here first, folks. This life of Simon Says has afforded me wonderful things where I've not only got to entertain lots of people over 40 years, actually. I've learned a lot about myself. I really have. And I will share one story. Whenever I do a podcast, I always bring this up because it means so very much to me. Back in the days when I used to do summer camps, there was this camp for kids with cancer. And I would donate my time. For 18 years, I went up there. And one of the counselors came up to me, and he showed me a picture of one of his campers from the previous summer. And he said, this is so-and-so, and you incorporated him in your show. You made him a star. He was on cloud nine. All the boys in his bunk were so happy for him. And I just want to let you know 
that he has passed away over the summer and what a difference you made in his life. And Christy, I got in my car and I cried for a solid 20 minutes. It, he caught me so off guard with this news. But at the end of the day, the kid was just being a kid. I was just being an entertainer. And what I learned from the experience is I can't complain about anything because there are parents that lost a kid and there's nothing worse in the world than that. So if I miss a flight, if I miss a gig, if I'm sitting in traffic, no matter what it is, I'll give myself a second, a second. And and even that is pushing it because I am so fortunate to have what I have to do what I do to be married to the woman I'm married to, to have two healthy boys. I once missed a flight two days in a row, and I couldn't get to two gigs. I didn't miss a flight. The flights just never showed up. And I was livid, and I called my wife, and I was swearing into my phone saying, "Ah, ah, ah." and she says, you're such a putz. She said, get a grip. She said, we have a roof over our head food in the fridge, and two healthy boys, call the next gig and tell them you're going to arrive a day early. And that's basically it. So it's all about trying to be a positive force in the universe. And what I used to tell the kids at my school assembly program, I said, y'all have a superpower. You can't fly like Superman. You can't lift big boulders like the Hulk. Your superpower is you can make other human beings smile. Mm. And how do you do that? Through acknowledgement, through interaction, through, you know, when you walk past another human being, if you don't say anything, at least look them in the eyes to let them know you see them. So for me, having this job where every day I get to interact with other human beings and make them smile and make them laugh, Chrissy, it's the best job in the world. And I can see that. I can see in your enthusiasm. As I'm listening to you, what I'm hearing over and over is you live a life of gratitude. And I think the happiest people in the world live a life of gratitude, whether they say it that way or not. They're grateful for what they have. It doesn't mean it has to be hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of dollars. It's being grateful for who and what is in your life. And I can see, Steve, very clearly that that's how you live your life and also being a good human being. So one more thing I wanted to tell you, as I watched you live, as I watched video of you, I thought, you know where I want to see this guy? You know where it is I want to see you? I want to see you on the Jimmy Fallon show because I think he's hysterical. And I think that would be to see the two of you together. So I'm putting it out there. I'm putting it out there. <laughs> Jimmy, if you're listening, and he's probably not, but if you're listening or somebody you know is listening, I want to see the Simon Says guy on your show. Would you say yes? I would say emphatically yes. I would even do Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> but I understand. <laughs> I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of both their shows, but I can understand how you would say Jimmy Fallon because he's so playful and so kid-like in everything that he does. And Jimmy Kimmel, too. I can totally see that. That's where I want to see you in 2024, in addition to all the other places. Any of the Jimmys. I'll take any of the Jimmys. Any of the Jimmys. So, Steve, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to reach you? Thank you for asking. Appreciate that. The best way to reach me is by going to my website, stevemax.com. And that's Max with just one X, stevemax.com. Or I have a lot of status out there in the interwebs. So if you forget stevemax.com and you just Google Simon Says and throw a Steve in the mix, you'll find me that way too. And I save my website over a phone number because I'm constantly on the road. 
So I can actually be on a plane and check my emails, but I cannot answer your phone call on the plane. So stevemax.com. Thank very you good. very, very much for asking. Yes, of course. Last question, very serious question. Will you Sherpa for me at one of my triathlons? Maybe it'll be the one that Linda and I do, and you could Sherpa for both of us. Yeah, you know what? I would definitely carry your helmet, your bike helmet, and your wetsuit. I'll carry yours. I'll carry hers. Definitely. Our stinky running shoes? (laughs) Well, I have to draw the lines somewhere. (laughs) I'll hang the stinky running shoes around my neck so I don't have to touch them. (laughs) Good answer. I want to close out by quoting, reading a quote from Goldie Hawn. She said, I'm a dreamer with a lot of energy and a vivid imagination. That's the recipe for becoming an entertainer. Would you agree? How could I not? That's an amazing quote from Goldie. She and I see eye to eye. Well, Steve, thank you so much for saying yes and taking a chance. I so appreciate you being a part of this. It has been an absolute delight speaking with you today. Well, Christy, I will say Simon says, I hope your podcast blows up. I know if you just started it recently and you have a few interviews under your belt. I hope this is just becomes just uber mega big and the whole world gets to know about Christy. Thank you. I appreciate that very much, Steve. My pleasure. 